Well, we're coming to the end of this series on the Beatitudes. In fact, from uh, a fortnight today, God willing, I shall be giving the last one about blessed are the persecuted. And this is number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And you remember, for each of the other Beatitudes, I've given you a sort of Beatitude of the world as opposed to the Beatitude of Jesus. And I thought of the Beatitude of the world for this one. Blessed are the aggressive, for they to dominate. <laughs> but for us, blessed are the peacemakers, that they shall be called sons of God, and that obviously includes daughters of God. What a blessing a peacemaker is in any group, whether it's in a family, a church, a prayer group, a monastery, a work situation. What a blessing are those people who are always being used and setting about making peace through peace. And what a problem is the person in any group who is always causing dissensions, creating disunity, stirring the pot. We all know that, don't we? We all have experience of that. We know just these two, these two extremes, these two different poles. And alas, that we find ourselves sometimes more in one and sometimes more in the other. We all fail to be peacemakers at times. We all stir the pot. You know, there's nobody here who hasn't at times said something which they realized afterwards would have better not been said. She said this. There's no need to say that she said that. And that's going to cause trouble. He did this. There's no need to say in that circumstance what he did. It's just causing trouble. We've all done that at times, haven't we? We've all been insensitive. We've all been sort of gossips or tattlers. We've all done things which, instead of causing peace, cause division and harm. And we are all called to be peacemakers in our daily lives and in our immediate settings. And it's very important that we try not to miss the opportunities for doing this as God gives us. You see, God is always wanting to use us for the building up of his kingdom. And an important way in which we do that is by being a peacemaker. And so we're surrounded by situations, always in this life, in this fallen world, where there are frictions, difficulties, problems, disunities, backbiting and so on. Criticism of the wrong kind. That's the world we live in, in a fallen world. And God is always wanting to use us to bring, so to speak, the oil of reconciliation to bring peace, to be a peacemaker. And we want to be, try to be open, open to this calling of God, open to the situations which God is, has created for us to be used in this way, to bring the peace of Jesus to situations and to people. And so often perhaps we miss these opportunities through being self-centered, disinterested, unkind, not caring. How often we could have said something and didn't could have done something and didn't. Now just think of the sort of many situations which this arises. And the very obvious one is in families and in the marriages. You know, marriage seems to be much under attack in England today. We all know in all our churches the problems of marriages breaking up and the, the trials and difficulties in marriages. And that's a wonderful way in which we can be used as a peacemaker. Someone who knows a husband, knows a wife, and just sort of say the right thing at the right moment, suggest the right thing at the right moment, or even if you, even if you don't know only one of the partners, you can at least help them to set out on the way of being uh, loving, forgiving, the way of reconciliation. Families, sometimes relations between children and their parents, parishes, Prayer groups, including charismatic prayer groups. Charismatic prayer groups are no exception to the rule that there are sometimes tensions, difficulties, jealousies, envies, backbiting. We live in a fallen world and in the charismatic movement we participate in that fallen nature of humanity. And of course at work situations too. So there we are, we're all called to be peacemakers in all these situations. 
And through the grace of God, we all can be peacemakers. You know, it isn't just as if a few people have got the gifts and opportunities of doing that, and the rest of us really can't. You know, there's an immense need, an infinite need of peacemakers all over the place, and we're all called to be that, and all of our lives can be fruitful in this direction. Now, I talked about in the beginning being a peacemaker in our immediate setting. But then, of course, we're called to work and pray for the wider peace. Peace in our country, peace in the world. And that can be done, that may involve a certain practical side. You know, God gave us practical gifts too. It may mean joining a justice and peace group in a parish such as this one. It may be joining Pax Christi, which is a Roman Catholic movement right across the world for working for peace and justice. It may be for some person a call to join Amnesty International. Or another person might feel called to join a nuclear disarmament campaign. You know, we may be called to work for peace at that direction. Don't let us sort of rule out any sort of practical action on our part. I'm not saying everybody's called to do that. And maybe God would want us to join political parties, to work for peace, to work for justice. You know, Christians should go into the world to try and bring the world to Jesus, and not just leave things like political parties to other people. I know not everybody's called to join a political party. I've never done so, and don't expect to do so. Don't intend to do so. I th think I can safely say it won't do so. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, I'm sure that some people are called to join political parties to work for justice and peace because we're meant to be the leaven in the lump. And if we, don't, if we leave that world to others, to the children who don't know Jesus, well obviously we bear responsibility when things go wrong in our country and in our world if we all opt out and are not interested at that level. So as I said, not everybody's called to join a political party. But there's one level where we are all called to work and can work effectively for world peace, for the wider peace, and that is through prayer. And I say it without any fear of being wrong. We can all work powerfully for peace and justice in the world at that level. We can all make an important contribution at that level. I don't mean to say a, a, a public contribution. Not that you, when you die there'll be your obituary in the Times saying how much you prayed for peace in Northern Ireland. But in fact, what you may do for peace through your prayers may be much more important than the people who do get their obituaries in the Times. And maybe a certain amount of fasting too. Night vigils. You know, it's rather sad. In this church, you know, they've been organizing a sort of vigils for peace, I think once a month, and very, very few people have attended. Didn't go on all night either. You know, not even turning up for an hour or two. And you know, the appearances, whatever one thinks of them, Medjugorje in Yugoslavia, the visions there, whatever one thinks of them, the thing is acts on peace. The importance of praying for peace and fasting for peace. And that certainly, that certainly is something of God. Did I personally am convinced that God is very much at work in Medjugorje. But there's a, there's a direction in which we can all make an important contribution. And I would hope that everybody here prays daily for peace, for justice in the world, for disarmament. I would consider there'd be something wrong in the ordinary life of prayer of an ordinary Christian if they just let one day go by without praying for peace at least for some time. You see, it's only too obvious that our, our world is at the human level threatened by nuclear crises and bombs and disintegrations and so on, isn't it? You don't need to be, you know, a sort of pessimist to see, to, to see the risks and problems. And therefore that's something we're all called to be concerned about. <coughs> and we Christians, we the disciples of Jesus, we've been given a wonderfully powerful weapon to do something about this and that's prayer. We've been given other weapons too, but the basic weapon for us is doubtless prayer. 
And I would hope that we particularly pray for the troubled spots like Northern Ireland, like with Lebanon, like the latest flare up in the world. Now some people say, oh dear, but I've been praying for Northern Ireland for the last 10 years, and look at it, they're still kidding each other. Our prayers don't seem to work much. Give it up. I'm tired of it. They haven't had that peace and justice which we seek. And you know, that's a very short-sighted view. All authentic prayer is heard. All authentic prayer makes a difference. You know, I'm convinced that if many Christians haven't been praying for peace in Northern Ireland, that the, the total number of people killed in hostilities would not have been perhaps, say, 6,000, but perhaps 60,000 or 600,000. You know, God has been answering prayer. Things could have been very, very much worse. And if there hasn't been a nuclear holocaust in the last decades, I'm sure that's an answer to prayer too. Because Christians have been praying. You know, the hostilities in the world could have been so much worse, so much more drastic. And I'm sure it's in part an answer to prayer that they haven't been. There's a woman who used to come to our prayer group when she lived in this district. And she's an elderly woman with quite a lot of sickness and quite a lot of time on her hands. And she refers to the newspaper as my prayer book. I think that's absolutely wonderful. And she takes about three times as long to read the newspaper as most people, not because she's scanning the latest financial news, <laughs> but because it is her prayer book. She reads things and prays about them. And the media, the newspaper, feeds her prayer. And I think that's the only excuse for a Christian really watching the, the media, the television, following the news, to feed our prayer. At least, I think that's a basic thing. I think to look at these things on television, these disasters, and not pray about it is so destroying. Of course, it can also, these can also, things can also help instruct us and inform our opinion. But if, if it's not in leading us to prayer, if it's not inspiring us to prayer, there's something gone wrong. Perhaps the other people here who need to start thinking of the newspaper as my prayer book. Now, if we are to be peacemakers around us in the world, we ourselves need to know the peace of Jesus. We read in Philippians chapter 4, And the peace of God which passes all understanding we keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We've been promised this peace which passes all understanding. And unless we know the peace of Jesus, unless we experience the peace of Jesus, unless we ourselves are to some extent filled with the peace of Jesus, we're not going to be effective in spreading the peace of Jesus. You know, you can get the sort of person who may be active in all sorts of campaigns in the name of peace, and you know, wherever they go, they cause divisional frustration. And you know, their activity can belie you know, their words and their intentions. And we, if we're going to be an author, a, a true and fruitful carrier of peace in the world, peacemaker, we ourselves have got to know the peace of Jesus. And we've got to know it at various levels. At the level of peace with other people, peace with God, peace with ourselves within ourselves. And I want just to say briefly a little about those. Peace with other people. That means love and forgiveness. You are not really going to be to know the peace of Jesus if you're unforgiving and if you're not loving. Just think of it at times. Think of the times when you've been in a bad mood with other people, when you felt bitter and resentful and unforgiving, and you weren't knowing the peace of Jesus at that time, were you? No, you weren't. And until you began to put that right, you didn't really know the peace of Jesus. And you know, there are wonderful cases in the healing ministry where people perhaps have been bitter and resentful and unforgiving for decades, and when they've learned to forgive, they've just been flooded with the peace of Jesus in a way they've never dreamed was possible in this life. So, have we forgiven everybody? Are we loving? And then, at peace with God. People might say, well, I mean to say, there's no problem about being at peace with God. He's God, he's all loving, he's all wise. How could I not be at peace with God? And the truth is, we can be very easily not at peace with God. 
You know, when we are bitter and resentful and angry with what's happened, we're not at peace with God. Even if we don't spell it out, we're angry with God, we're bitter with God. God, why did you allow my daughter to die? Why did you allow my marriage to bust up? Why did you allow my business to go bankrupt? Why did you allow my health to crack up? And there could be all sorts of bitterness and anger with God, even when it's not spelt out and recognised. And it's probably all the more difficult to deal with when it's not recognised. So we have to try and put that right, don't we? Repent of all our bitterness and resentment, turn to God, accept his will. And then peace with ourselves. And we shan't be at peace with ourselves if we don't repent, and repent seriously, and repent regularly, because we're all touched by sin, and the only authentic way which any of us can come before God is in repentance. That leads on to other things like praise, thanksgiving, unless there's a sort of basis of repentance, there's something inauthentic in our approach to God. So if we're going to be at peace within ourselves, we have to be repentant, Accepting of God's forgiveness. You know, lots of people can't accept God's forgiveness. When we repent, God forgives. But some people can't forgive themselves. Can't accept God's forgiveness, can't forgive themselves. You know, I found this sometimes, and it's understandable, but nevertheless, it's not God's will. You know, people who've had an abortion, and perhaps at the time they weren't serious Christians and it seemed the obvious thing to do and everybody said it was the right thing to do and they thought it wouldn't be just to bring this child in the world in these circumstances and so on. And then when they had later a Christian conversion or deeper conversion, they realised what they'd done. They snuffed out a life. And at one level you can't put that clock back, can you? And some people can have a sort of terrible guilt which it doesn't disappear. And they've got to know that when they repent, Jesus forgives them, and they must learn to forgive themselves too. Otherwise, they won't know, they won't know the peace which Jesus has for them. And also this, if we're to know his peace, we've got to say yes to God's perfect will for us. We're not really at peace, not deeply at peace, if we're not willing to accept whatever God wills for us, the, will, his, his, the circumstances we're in at the moment, and whatever he may will for us in the future, even though we, we seek quite rightly to change some of the present circumstances, even though we pray for protection in the future. So I think that means saying, yes, God, to the suffering you wish for me, yes to the death you wish for me, yes also to the conversion healing, fruitfulness, peace, joy. Yes to that side too. But yes to the death you wish for me, yes to the suffering. You see, if we don't say yes to these things, then we can have a great deal of fear. You know, in a great many people, there is fear of death, hidden or otherwise. And it can show itself in fear of ill health and feelings of insecurity. And if we rarely learn to say deeply, Yes, Lord, to whatever you will. Yes to that death which you will want for me. Yes to any suffering you want for me. No to other sufferings, but yes to that one. Then we can know a peace which we don't know as long as we're resisting what God may will for us. So you see, if the doctor said to me, I'm afraid you'll be totally blind in three months' time, but humanly speaking, I'd find that very, very terrible. But if I were to say, Yes, Lord, if that's your will, yes, then I'd ask you all to storm and fast for the next few months, but anyhow, <laughs> for a healing. But against the background, I hope, of saying, well, Lord, if that's what you will, yes. And if one can say that, one will know the peace of Jesus. And until one says that, one won't rarely know, not fully know, the peace of Jesus. Now, I want to say another thing, I think, which is a great help for peace, and that is praising God. You know, I think, I think we were, probably most of us are feeling much more at peace after we've praised God for 45 minutes 
from when you first came in this evening? Yes? Yes? I certainly. You see, there's something missing in our lives. We're not fulfilling the will of God, the perfect will of God, when our life isn't one of praise and thanksgiving. And when we're missing out there, there's something missing, and we don't know the peace of Jesus as God wants us to know it. You know, I'm somebody who finds this sort of thing difficult. I always talk about it precisely because I find it difficult. But I went for a walk today, and I do it in this spring weather, and I try to praise God with all the flowers. I'm deeply moved by the beauty of blossoms and flowers. And I go down and say, now what, every petal is praising you there, and I praise you with every petal. And there are billions of petals about, aren't there? And, you know, that really helps me. That really helps me to praise God. Really helps me to praise God. Well, and you know, when I've been doing that for a bit, the worries tend to go away and the anxieties and the sort of the angers and the bitternesses and all these things which you can otherwise turn around in your... You know, praise helps to take them away, doesn't it? Because we're meant to be praising people. And there's something missing in our lives if we're not praising people. And you know, the more and more, the more you give yourself to praise and thanksgiving, the more you know the peace of Jesus. Now Jesus promised us peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. John 14. And you notice he says, it's my peace I give to you. And it's not as the world gives. You know, there can be a sort of worldly peace, which is a false peace. There can be a certain sort of probably just for a time, absence of friction or, or difficulty. Somebody that's got out of all these things for a time. And they think they're at peace. And it can be a sham peace and a bogus peace. Just as in the Old Testament, the false prophets were often crying peace, and the true prophets were saying, no, there wasn't peace. So, so there we are. The peace Jesus gives us is not the absence of all trials and trouble. Think of the disciples. I mean, Jesus was just saying at this moment, I, peace I leave with you. And what happened to them during the next week? What did they have to go through during the next week? Just the most shattering experience they ever had. And the rest of their lives. And traditionally, all but St. John the Martyr. So you see, Jesus didn't say, become my disciple, I'll give you my peace, and you'll have no more trials and troubles, and you'll just gradually go from cloud nine to heaven at the right moment. No, that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? And we know there will be cross, and the cross, and we know there will be trials. Jesus is not promising us an easy time when he gives us his peace. So we've got to avoid false peace. Peace at any price. And let me give you an example of that. Somebody might try to avoid trouble by not standing up to someone when they should stand up to them not facing up to someone when they should face them, not telling someone they're wrong when they should tell them. And they could say, oh, in the name of peace, stop and trouble that person. And in fact, it would be a false peace. And sometimes we've got to speak out for Jesus, speak out for justice, speak out for the kingdom, and that's going to cause trouble. And you know, there's a certain sort of disunity, which is of God. And sometimes we've got to try and create disunity. If you've got a gang of criminals who are all happily united in their syndicate, and one of them gets converted to Jesus, it creates disunity. And that's the sort of disunity we want, isn't it? There can be a sort of false peace, a false unity. And that's not true peace. And then doing the work of Jesus will disrupt those things. So we're talking here about true peace and true unity, and not a false peace and a false unity. But what I want to say is this, we can experience peace at the deeper level in the midst of trials. And that's very important. It doesn't matter what the trial, what the difficulty is. And I say that knowing just, we know how terrible trials and difficulties can be. But people can experience the peace of Jesus, at least at the deeper level, whatever the trial and whatever the difficulty is. And sometimes I've been immensely impressed when you visited people perhaps who were dying of cancer or in some other way were in the most appalling situations perhaps being knocked about by their husband or something like that in an awful way. And despite these awful situations, 
you rarely see the peace of Christ shining through them. And it really is very humbling and very impressive. And that can be so. If we're faithful to Jesus, he will give us his peace in the most appalling situations. But it may sometimes be a rather hidden peace, as far as the person experiencing it goes. It may be a peace seen by others more than by them. You know, sometimes when people come into the charismatic renewal to start with, and the baptized in the Spirit, they have a sort of cloud nine experience, or when they have a first conversion to Christ, and that can go on for months, and they can experience that to a They have great feelings of peace, great emotional feelings of peace. That's a blessing. Thank God for that blessing. It's a wonderful thing. God gives us his purposes. But it won't go on forever. You're not meant to live on cloud nine forever. And sometimes later, we often do not feel peace, at least on the surface, but the peace can be there underneath. And often we have the consolation of, of seeing that we are the instruments of bringing peace of Jesus to others, even when we don't feel it. And I'm sure many people in the healing ministry, they've probably been feeling like death warmed up and prayed over someone, and feeling absolutely broken and tired and not like it and so on, and to their great surprise, found that they were used by Jesus to bring in a wonderful way of the peace of Jesus to that other person. So often, our consolation has to be not that we feel peace, particularly at the surface level, but that we see that God is using us to be peacemakers and spread his peace. And St. Paul, I think, can help us there. You know, St. Paul talked about the peace of God which passes all understanding. I read that earlier, Philippians 4. But St. Paul also said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, Romans 9, talking about his concern for the Jews. So, you see, the peace which Jesus promised, the peace of our, which passes our understanding, doesn't mean that there won't be anguishes and sorrows in our hearts if we're really concerned, as we should be concerned, about the kingdom. You know, Jesus, no, St. Paul said, you laugh with those who laugh, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. We're not called to be on cloud nine all the time. We're also called to weep with those who weep. And there are a lot of things in this world which need weeping for. And we can know the peace of Jesus even at those times. I'm coming to the end. As we are filled with the peace of Christ, we shall automatically be peacemakers. And that's a wonderful thought, you know. You know, someone who rarely experiences in their life is rarely filled with the peace of Jesus. They will be spreading peace wherever they go, even if they're not aware of it, even when they're not trying to do so, even when they're surprised that other people say so. And haven't you met people like that sometimes? Just their presence brought peace. Just their presence was that of a peacemaker. And we're all called to have that sort of presence. And we all can have that sort of presence, at least in some degree. You know, Jesus is always with us, and he's always saying to us, peace be with you. Remember, he said it to the disciples at the time of the resurrection. And the Jews and the disciples were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. They were feeling panicky, and they had good reason to do so. And Jesus came and he said, peace be with you. And he's saying that to all of us. And so at all times, in all circumstances, and I mean all, just think of the worst possible ones, you know, we can know at any rate at the deepest level the peace of Jesus. His peace will be with us, and in all those circumstances, even the most difficult, we can, through his grace and mercy, be peacemakers, people who bring his peace to others. Lord Jesus, you made peace by your death on the cross. And we enter into that death on the cross as we die to ourselves so that we too can bring peace to others. Lord, we desire to be peacemakers. And we know that nothing can come between us and the love of God 
in Christ Jesus. And this is our peace. To know that we rest in Jesus. And we accept now, Lord, your gift of peace into our hearts, into our lives, into all our troubles and difficulties. Your peace into our loneliness and despair. Your peace into our violence and our hatred. Speak that word, Lord, to our troubled souls that calm the seas. That we can be calm and at peace with you. Though the mountains shake, we shall be at peace. And Lord, open our hearts to let this peace flow into the world. Active peace. Peace that prays and loves. Peace that's ready to die for others. Lord, give us your peace now. And open our hearts to all those needy people who need so much the Lord Jesus and his peace. Amen. Add, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, it's pretty tough stuff, that, isn't it, really? And you remember, as for the other Beatitudes, I, I sort of invented what you might call the, uh, the Beatitude of the world as opposed to the Beatitude of the Gospel. And I thought of this, Blessed are the compromisers, for they shall escape trouble. <laughs> I thought originally of, Blessed are the diplomatic, for they shall escape trouble, but I think compromisers is probably nearer the... the the bullseye. Well, this beatitude obviously includes all those Christians who are being persecuted because they are Christians. And it's good just to remember, and not infrequently, that we have many brothers and sisters in Christ in the world today who are in prison because they are Christians, who are persecuted in other ways because they are Christians. If you are in Albania, and you're probably caught worshipping, that's prison. If you're in countries like East Germany, Russia perhaps and others, if you're known to be a Christian, you won't get on in the world, you won't get a better job, and perhaps your children won't go to the university. And uh, if you're in a Muslim country, you can be difficulties too, some Muslim countries particularly, I'm not saying all. So you see, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the world today are rarely being persecuted for their faith. And you know, sometimes, sometimes we Roman Catholics particularly think of the age of the martyrs in the first centuries of the church. This century is also the century of martyrs. In fact, there have been more martyrs for Christ in this century than in any other century. And people are being martyred every, every week because of their fidelity to Jesus. Blessed are they. But this beatitude, of course, is much wider than persecuted Christians. It includes all those who are persecuted for standing up for what is right anywhere and everywhere. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. And there are many people in the world, thank God, who through the power of 
the Holy Spirit are standing up for right, being willing to stand up for the right and be persecuted for it. For instance, let us think of situations like, say, Poland or Afghanistan or Latin and Central America or South Africa. There are people there being persecuted because they demand justice, because they demand freedom for other people, because they protest against the tyranny of totalitarian states. So there we are. It's not just those who are Christians. And another example is those who are persecuted for fighting for justice, those who are persecuted for standing up for the rights of the unborn child, for example, in this country. There are nurses who've lost their jobs, doctors who've been penalized. I know one man who had a job in a, a city bank, merchant bank, and uh, he suddenly realized one day that the, chair, the shares he'd been asked to sell on the market uh, were from a firm which specialized in abortion pills. And he said to his employer that he felt in conscience he couldn't sell those shares. And they didn't accept that, and he got in a frightful row, and he was dismissed without a pension. They even threatened to sue him for breach of contract. But in his conscience, he just felt that he couldn't go around touting those shares. So you see, it's uh, a fairly wide range of people who are involved. And indeed, those persecuted for promoting honesty in business or in other affairs, whether it's in capitalist countries or communist countries. In the case of Ian Andrews, you know, that man with a very wonderful healing ministry who's been in this church twice, ministering to us, where he had a very, very promising job in the city as an accountant, with a very wonderful career spreading out in front of him, worldly career. And then he had a deep conversion when he saw his wife receive a remarkable healing. And soon after that, he refused to make two sets of accounts, one for the tax people and the other for the bank. And a week later, he was made redundant and couldn't get another job. But if he tried, no, people weren't interested in an accountant with that sort of integrity. So you see, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, and that can include people in business in England today. Now we are easily surprised, upset, aggrieved when we are persecuted for righteousness sake, for doing right. As if God should protect us from all trouble, harm, persecution, when we do what is right. Sometimes we have the idea, well God, I've given myself to you, I'm doing what you want me to do, and look, everything's going wrong. I'm losing my job, I can't get a job, I'm being persecuted, criticized, attacked by other people. Well, you know, sometimes, I think quite wrongly, we're grieved and surprised when those things happen. But Jesus told us that we shall be persecuted if we follow him and obey him. He's very clear about that. John 15. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you you will be, they will persecute you. There you are. And we shouldn't think, well, you know, that applied to the first few generations, but now we're meant to have lived in what used to be called Christian Europe. That doesn't apply to us. Jesus didn't say, you know, they'll persecute you during the first generations. No. And that is what he warned us to expect. And I think it would do us good, you know, particularly if we're sort of inclined to be surprised and aggrieved when we do run into a spot of persecution, I think we need to remember more what life was like for the early Christians. So I'm going to read a couple of passages from the New Testament. And the first is Acts 8. And this is concerning the Jews. Well, the first example is one from the Jews, the second from the Gentiles, the pagan Christians. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul laid waste the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. <coughs> now, 
just try and imagine what it was like. You were a new Christian. You've been a Christian perhaps a few weeks or a few months or perhaps a bit longer than that. But you weren't born a Christian, no one was born a Christian, so to speak. No one, no one was born into a Christian family in those days. And then the persecution started, and some of your, your father, your mother, your wife, yourself, were thrown into prison, and others sort of escaped with the, the baggage they could carry with them. And you know, just being sort of escaping to other towns in Israel and elsewhere wasn't an easy process. You know, there wasn't social security in those days. There wasn't a sort of system of helping people in. You know, it was tough going. So, you had to leave your shop, leave your family, leave your business, leave all your material security, your human security, and just take to the road. Because you were a Christian. Because you were following Jesus. <coughs> and that chap Paul, incidentally, Saul as he was then, didn't stop at Jerusalem, but he actually went off to Antioch too, to bring you back down, didn't he? Now let's take the... And just think of this too. What other people thought of you? You'd become a Christian. What did your parents think of you? Thought you'd become a nutcase, a traitor. Thought you'd join the Moonies or something. <coughs> what did your neighbour think of you? Your employer. You were sort of re regarded by many as sort of gone off your rockers, the scum, dangerous, fifth column. Traitor to, to, to Judaism, to Israel. That's what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in the first generation in Judea. And what about the Gentiles? And I think here of the Thessalonians. We read in the Acts of the Apostles, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities. And this is what they accused them of, acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Acts 17. Life was pretty tough. Those people had probably been Christians a few weeks at the most. Some of them perhaps just a few days. And that was the sort of persecution they got landed into. And see what St. Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's servant in the gospel of Christ, to establish you in your faith and to exhort you that no one be moved by these afflictions. You yourselves know that this is to be our lot, for when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and as you know. That's what it was like being one of the first Christians in, Thess in Thessalonica. And, you know, the early Christians were led to expect affliction. You became a Christian at the risk of your life and your property, and you knew it. Today, in the, the Roman Catholic Church, is the feast of St. Justin, the martyr. And he was martyred in the year 165 for being a Christian. And the Roman prefect, pronouncing the sentence, said, said this is about St. Justin and those who were with him, these men have refused to sacrifice to the gods and to obey the emperor. Let them be taken away and flogged and then put to death in accordance with the law. Christians were seen as disloyal, as lawbreakers, as traitors. So when you joined the church, that's what you were for most of the people around you. When you became a Christian, that's how they regarded you, and that's how many of you got punished. So it's rather surprising that we should expect never to suffer persecution for our faith for righteousness' sake or at least so many Christians, you know, don't expect it, feel something has gone wrong. Nothing has gone wrong when you suffer persecution for being a Christian or persecution for righteousness' sake. And indeed, something's gone wrong if you are never persecuted for being a Christian, if you are never persecuted for <coughs> righteousness' sake. 
I mean that. It means if you are never persecuted for being a Christian or for righteousness sake, you are not doing much for Jesus. It's as simple as that. Because the devil will attack you, see that you are attacked <coughs> if you are doing something seriously good for Jesus. He attacks everybody. But particularly those who are dangerous to him and his kingdom, he particularly attacks people who are doing something important for Jesus. So if you are never persecuted for being a Christian or righteousness sake, you can be quite certain that you are not doing much for Jesus and for the building up of his kingdom. It may not be violent persecution, but don't let us say too easily, in England in the 20th, 21st century, we're not going to have violent persecution. It couldn't happen here. That belongs to wilder lands or different centuries. Just think of Russia. How many Christians in the year 1900 in Russia would have said, it can't happen here, holy Russia, country which has been so wonderfully Christian for so many centuries, you couldn't have persecution, persecution of Christianity here. It did happen. Think of the people who were persecuted in Nazi Germany for being Christians, who ten years ago earlier would have said, oh, it can't happen here in Christian Germany. Right, so we can never rule out violent persecution. But there are other forms of persecution, other forms of persecution which can cause much suffering. Being criticized, ridiculed, ostracized for being a Christian, for standing up what, for what is right. And that's the sort of thing which we can quite normally expect to suffer. And it may come from within the family, which can make it particularly painful. I've known of wives who are very severely criticized by their husbands because they wondered whether his way, uh, way of being in tax forms was quite right. One's known of, you know, parents who've persecuted their children and children who've been persecuted by their parents, wives by husbands, husbands by wives, for being Christians, for the moral stands they've taken. It can be at school. You know, quite a lot of young people at school, boys and girls at school, who rarely give their lives to Jesus, come in for a lot of unpleasantness from the other boys and girls around them. A great deal. They can take a great deal of courage and moral fibre to admit that you're a Christian and a serious Christian in a great many schools. It can be at work, it can be in the neighbourhood. It can be anywhere, and indeed, this is what we are led to expect if we follow Jesus. People can be criticised for being in the charismatic renewal, ridiculed, looked down on, suspected, for being involved in the healing ministry, for evangelism. Good heavens, you're not one of those people who goes out on the road doing that sort of thing, are you? People not to be trusted, somewhat dangerous, not very sensible. So, and indeed, there are certainly people here tonight, not a few people tonight, who suffered quite a lot of criticism because they became involved in the charismatic renewal. So there we are. We need to expect this as normal. And particularly if we're trying to serve the Lord very seriously. That is part of following Jesus. He told us so, we find it happening down the centuries. And it can be particularly painful sometimes when it happens from fellow Christians. But we find it in the lives of the saints that all our churches, persecuted by often by other people in the church, sometimes by church authorities, for a time at any rate. This is what we are to expect if we follow Jesus. Well, what are we to do when persecuted for righteousness' sake? I don't say if persecuted for righteousness' sake, I say when persecuted for righteousness' sake. First, and I've got a few points here, do not be surprised, accept the situation, 
Know that God is at work in the situation to bring good out of evil if we let him. We must always believe that Jesus is in command of the situation, that he allows nothing to happen to us which is outside his loving providence, and that he will bring good out of evil if we let him. We've got to have faith, we've got to believe that. And of course I think of that wonderful example in the Old Testament of Joseph the Patriarch. He was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and how God used that for bringing food to the children of Israel in a great time of famine, didn't he? We've simply got to believe that when things apparently are going wrong, that doors close which we thought shouldn't have closed, when we're misunderstood and ill-treated, God is at work in that situation bringing good out of evil when we let him. And the only thing which can stop that happening is when we fail to cooperate with Jesus. Whatever the others do to us can't stop God using, using all that to bear fruit and bring good out of it. And there's an, there's an element there of redemptive suffering. That the sufferings we endure through persecution for righteousness' sake can be fruitful through the grace of Jesus for his mercy. And it can be a good thing to offer them up to God knowing that through his grace and mercy they can be, a, they can be so to speak, a participation in Jesus' work of redemption. They can be fruitful. And that's very good news. That's very good news. You know, a thing which is very terrible to think about is suffering which is fruitless and meaningless. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? Severe suffering which is senseless, fruitless and meaningless. But through the grace of God we know that all suffering, all our sufferings could be wonderfully fruitful and meaningful. And that is a great blessing. Then the second point, when we are persecuted for righteousness sake, is I think of the words of Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what we've always got to do. And loving them includes forgiving them. And again, I think of the example of Paul. Just think how many hundreds, perhaps thousands of Christians, following the teaching of Jesus, were praying for their persecutor, Paul. And look how God answered that prayer. Look how God answered that prayer. So we know we have never an excuse for not loving someone. We are always wrong when we fail to love. We are always wrong when we fail to forgive. We are always wrong when we're not praying for our persecutors. And that we've got to do. No excuses. No for saying, oh, this was such a terrible act and he's totally unrepentant and he's doing it to other people. If he asks for forgiveness, I do it, but he's not repentant. No. All cases, we have to love, forgive, pray for. And if we don't, then we're not following Jesus in that situation. That's not just a counsel of perfection for a few canonizable saints. That is what Jesus is commanding of every Christian. That means you and me. And when we fall short of that, we are sinning and need to repent of all lack of love and all unforgiveness and all bitterness and all resentment and all failure to pray for the enemy. That is what we are all called to. That is what following Jesus means. And the third, the third point I want to make is praise God in and for the situation. Ray was talking a little about that earlier. Praise God for and in the situation. Now, humanly speaking, that might seem totally impossible, and indeed, without the grace of God, it is totally impossible. But you remember when Paul and Silas were beaten up in Philippi, and their backs were bleeding, and their hands were in the feet and socks, and they were going to... They, we were going to appear before the magistrates in the morning and they didn't know what awaited them. And what were they doing at midnight? Praising God in song. And then the miracle happened. So that's what we're called to do. You know, it says in this beatitude, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We rarely need, to the grace of God, to try and praise him when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, to rejoice when we are. That's the third point. And you know, praise is so important. When we fail to praise, when we fail to thank, when we fail to rejoice, whatever the difficulties, when we fail to do that, then things are slipping. We're not 
fully following Jesus. Again, praising God in the difficulties, it isn't just a counsel of perfection for a few people, it's what all Christians are commanded to do. So as best we can, as best we can, we might be feeling frightfully grim, we might be feeling very much a sort of Gethsemane thing, but that's what we're all called to try to do. And I think of the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. They'd just been beaten for preaching the name of Jesus. And it says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So we are to rejoice when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. When we are persecuted for the name of Jesus. And the last point I want to make is, one can also work and pray for the removal of the persecution. I'm not saying we should just sort of lie there and let people walk over us always like a doormat. We're right to work to overcome the persecution and we can pray for it. And God sometimes hears that prayer in remarkable ways. I've known more than one situation in recent years in which somebody was really causing trouble unrightly to other people. And people prayed, Lord, convert that person or remove them. And I've known some very quick removals from the scene. <laughs> there was one headmaster who was being an intolerable burden on his school. And he was 60 and he had announced he was going on to 65 and there was no way of getting rid of him and everybody was groaning. And some people prayed that prayer and within a week he had it in his resignation immediately. <laughs> So, you see, we've got to believe, too, it's not that Jesus can't do anything, you know. We're right to say, well, Lord, convert these people, but if not, Lord, remove that person. We can do that when led by the Spirit to do so. When led by the Spirit to do so. And God can answer those prayers sometimes very effectively. But that's not a prayer to pray in all circumstances, you know, about that remove, when the Lord leads us to do so. Now, this is the last of these, these talks on, on the Beatitude. And I thought of four reflections which apply particularly to tonight, but which apply to all these Beatitudes. And the first is, the way of the Gospel and the values of the Gospel are very different from those of the world, one might even say totally opposed to the ways of the world. And we do really need to be convinced of that. You see, for people who are seeking worldly success, those Beatitudes, and particularly the last one, are total nonsense. And we know that the wisdom of the world is not the wisdom of the Gospel, not the wisdom of Jesus. And we're called to follow the wisdom of the Jesus. And far too often we get compromises. And that's the second point. Far too many Christians are only seeking to go halfway with the Gospel, seeking to live a Christianity of compromise. Notice I say that's what they're seeking to do. We all sin, we all fail, we all in fact compromise at times. We are all sinners. We're not saying, you know, that's so. But what is, we're called to, to seek perfection, to try to go all the way with the Gospel. Now many Christians aren't even trying to. They're not even taught that that's what they should be trying to do. You know, they've been given the impression that if you get to church on Sunday and don't do, behave too badly in this way or that, you're doing all right. And there's something rather different from that, from the, the total call to give everything to God, which is for every Christian. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, we sometimes have the danger, or used to have, I think much less now than we used to, you know, that the priests and the nuns and the brothers in, in religious orders are called to go all the way, but you mustn't ask too much of lay people, or not most of them anyhow. And now we know, well, there are no first and, not meant to be any first and second class Christians in the church. And we are all called to give everything. We're all called to try to go the whole way. And that's the third point. We're all called to give everything, to try to give everything to God, to go all the way with the gospel. And that's normal Christianity. And that really means everything without exception. And that's what Jesus is asking of me. And that's what we've all got to try to do. We fail, we sin, we've got weaknesses, I've got masses of them. But at least, thank God, I know that's what I'm meant to be trying to do. And that's what we're all meant to be trying to do. 
not to be discouraged that we're still a very long way off perfection, not to be discouraged that we often fall on our faces. But you know, our very weaknesses and sins, that's part of what we give to Jesus, because we can't deal with it ourselves. You see, but the call is to give everything, including our sins and weaknesses, to Jesus, to offer everything, to really say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and want his perfect will to be done in ourselves. And the last point I shall just say is this, only then shall we truly experience the blessings which Jesus promises. You know, so much, so many Christians, they really haven't a clue of the joy and peace Jesus wants to give them. They really haven't a clue of the joy, the joy that can be theirs through being a Christian. They haven't a clue of the sort of healing and the power Jesus wants to, to show in their lives and in the lives of those about them. It's only when we try to give everything that we open ourselves up to receive those wonderful blessings he wants to give us. And you know, Jesus is never outdone in generosity. And when through his grace we give things to him, he showers his blessings on us, doesn't he? Yes, there'll be crosses, there'll be persecution, but we can know joy and peace and wonderful blessings despite all that. So that is what we're called to. And you know, it's not just that you can have a very grim time here beneath and then you'll get to heaven later. Yes, certainly, the eternal reward is the only place of infinite happiness. And that is the greatest part of the reward, eternity with God. But even in this life, also in this life, we can know wonderful blessings and joy and peace and healing and fruitfulness. And it's glorious to be a Christian, despite the cross, despite the persecutions. Now, I thought it would be good to have a prayer after that, after a moment's silence. So I'm not going to ask Pat, Pat Briscoe, to, to say a prayer, perhaps on the lines of the talk. Well, we're coming to the end of this series on the Beatitudes. In fact, in a, a fortnight today, God willing, I shall be giving the last one about blessed are the persecuted. Well, this is number seven.